you do not have a Bible, there's a black Bible in a seat back near you, in front of you, around you somewhere. If you find it and get to page 888, you'll be in Mark chapter 2 with us. And that's important to us. We want you to follow along with us in the reading of God's words. You understand that what we're talking about is the eternal, timeless, uh, never-changing word of God and not uh, just our opinion. And so uh, if, if you don't have one, grab one of those near you. Ask, your, ask somebody sitting next to you to reach one for you and get to page 888 and you'll be with us. I want to welcome each of you uh, here today uh, for our 1030 service and just remind you, I think Adam will remind you again at the end of it, uh, next Sunday we go to our three-service schedule. And so uh, next Sunday, uh, if you're here at 1030, that's fine. You'll just be 15 minutes early, okay? Uh, but you have a choice between 9 or 8, uh, 8 uh, 9.30 and 10.45. And so those will be our service times next week, and we hope uh, to have you here um, to, to attend at least one of those. And uh, we've been talking about that for the last several weeks and hope you're ready for all that. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we uh, start this time. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for all that you've done in our lives. We're grateful for each and every person that you've brought in here today. Uh, Lord, if, uh, for those trying us out for the first time, Lord, we're incredibly grateful for them. For those who are here for the thousandth time, Lord, we're incredibly grateful for them because we know that each and every person who's here is not here by accident. Uh, but you brought them here for your purposes this morning. And so, as we look at your words, we talk about this topic that is it's easily misrepresented, Lord, easily uh, misunderstood, easily confused. I pray that you would be our clarity this morning. Uh, Lord, change even my own words if they need to be before they get to the hear- ears of the hearers because uh, we want to get this right, Lord. We want, we want to make sure that this, uh, this understanding between your grace and religion is, is clear um, so that we make the right choice as a church. And so we surrender this time to you. We trust you with it. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I still remember the night that Corinne and I got engaged. And part of the reason why I still remember it is because I killed it, right? Everybody wants to know, like, when, when, they, when they get engaged, did you have a good story? I gave her a good story, all right? I, I planned every detail of the night. It was, it, it was months in planning. It was awesome. And it was all just to make up for how lame it was when I asked her out on the first date, right? So we had, we had this amazing experience. I'm not going to tell you the details. Sorry, all right? But shortly after, we drive to a restaurant together to celebrate, and we have a meal, and then we left and never talked about it again for months and never told anybody about it. Of course we didn't do that, right? Before we even went in the restaurant, we started calling our parents. And you know why? Because we were excited. Because when, you, when something good happens and you're excited about it, what do you do? You tell people about it. Right? Your joy is deepened when that exciting thing is shared. To this day, when something good happens in our girls' lives, one of their first requests are, can we call grandma and grandpa and tell them? This is, this is how we operate as human beings. And this is part of the genius of God's design for the church. I mean, think about it. He starts with the good news, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that you as a sinner can be forgiven in full and have eternal life in heaven. And when we respond in faith to that and surrender to God's good plan, he not only forgives us, he not only redeems us, not only adopts us as his child, but then he brings us into his church, which is a community of people who are also all been saved and adopted and redeemed by Jesus. And two of the foundations of the church are this, worship and evangelism. You know another way of putting those words? Celebrating and sharing. And so we have this immense joy of salvation that we sang about, right? This immense joy of salvation in Jesus that we are freed and forgiven. And then the very ways that God calls us to respond to that salvation actually are designed to increase our joy. It makes it better. Right? In celebrating it, our joy is deepened. In sharing it, our joy is deepened. 
I still remember Dr. Jim Lowe. He was a professor of religion at Indiana Wesleyan University. And he always told his students, if you're ever in a dry spell in your faith, right? You ever feel like you're in a spiritual drought, just go share your faith with a non-believer. And he'll snap you out of it every time. And he's right. But you see, God is pro-joy. Do you know that? He's pro-life. He's pro-freedom. He's pro-fun. He wants you to enjoy him and his presence more than anything. And God's design is to have such a hugely positive impact on your life that you can't help but celebrate it and you can't help but share it. Because we have been created for the glory of God and the more that we enjoy God, the more we will bring him glory. And so the heart of God wants you to enjoy your life. The heart of God wants you to enjoy him and enjoy his good gifts and be fulfilled in him. But boy, you wouldn't know it from a lot of churches, would you? Because there's a lot of church experiences and a lot of Christians that display the opposite of this. People walk around with just permanent frowns on their face instead of a life-giving smile. They're marked by skepticism far more than they're marked by joy. Their pessimism far outweighs their optimism. They're burdened more than they are freed. They're constantly keeping score with other people, comparing themselves with them. And you can just see it in their countenance. You can hear it in their tone of voice. It's easy to recognize in their opinions. You feel it in their presence. There's no joy here. And I think I know why. Because there's this deep draw within us that's not for our good. Because here's what I'm confident of today. The title of today's passage is that Jesus is greater than religion. And I walked in this morning confident that almost everyone who sits in this room this morning will agree with me on that. And then almost everyone will turn around, walk out these doors and pursue religious living anyways. Because religion, though we know it's bad, it's safer. You see, we don't have a context. We don't have precedent for grace. Grace is mysterious. We can't wrap our minds around it. And so this can cause us to feel guilt. This can cause us to question whether or not it's real. Surely I have to prove my worth, right? Surely I have to earn my keep. Surely I have to show I'm different. So I run right back to the burden of religion. And this is nothing new. And we're going to see it in today's passage. We're going to see it throughout the rest of the book of Mark. And it, it remains something that Jesus has been trying to change for 2,000 years. Because what he has for us is so much better. So if you're lacking in your enjoyment of God this morning, if the first thing that you feel about God isn't just immense joy, if you feel the burden of trying to earn his favor in your life, if you mentally and theologically understand grace, but you still haven't felt it and you still haven't really experienced it, if you aren't just completely blown away That God has saved you, yes, you of all people. And you're still trying to earn your standing with him or eternity in heaven. And I'm really grateful that you're here today. Because we're going to see in this passage in Mark 2, Jesus tell us that what he offers and what religion demands are completely incompatible. They do not go together. And what he has made readily available for us really is life and life to the fullest. And so I'm going to invite Roxanne Poe up. She's going to read today's passage for us. She's going to be reading Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Roxanne. Good morning. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, 
why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Thank you, Roxanne. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to ask that you keep your Bibles open there uh, to Mark chapter 2 as we break down this interaction with Jesus and those who are questioning him. And, and throughout the chapter, right, if you've been here, you haven't, and you can do a little quick reminder, there's been a contrast that Mark has been setting up for us, right? We haven't actually said this out loud, but it, it's pretty obvious as you go through it, is that Mark throughout this chapter has been showcasing Jesus' supremacy over the old religious system of Judaism, right? And so in the first, uh, the first uh, story with the paralytic, he, we see that the Son of Man, Jesus, right, has authority and power to both forgive sins and to heal people. The Judaic law only offered forgiveness temporarily through repeated sacrifices. But Jesus says here in this midst, I can forgive sins and I can heal people. And then last week, right, we saw that the old system, right, the old sort of religious structure practiced separation and isolation from sinners. It was about staying away from them so that you could stay pure. And Jesus came, he said, to seek and save the lost. I came for the sick, not for the healthy. He came to offer forgiveness to sinners, to bring them around him first, and then bring them into his kingdom. It's better. And in this week's passage, we'll continue that same theme. And again, and again throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see over and over that Jesus is greater than religion. And there's a couple terms that I think I need to define here at the beginning to make sure you understand what I'm saying this morning when I say that. So when I speak of Jesus, I speak of just sort of the idea of him. It's, it's the idea of his gospel and of faith in Jesus Christ. It is a trust in Jesus completely to save you, forgive you, redeem you, and, and grant you eternal life in heaven. So you put all your stock in him and his death and resurrection. When I say the word religion, what I'm talking about is anything else. Right? Even, if the, even if Jesus' name is brought into it. Religion is anything that, in, that ultimately results in a trust in you and your following of rules or traditions or rituals or works to earn your standing with God. So you're going to get to God by doing A, B, C, D, and E and on and on. And in that system, right, what religion always does is religion always adds burdens to people's lives. And so this, this section of Mark, Jesus is constantly being questioned. And last week, the question presented to Jesus was this. Why are you with them? Why are you hanging out with those sinners and all those tax collectors? You know what the question this week basically is? Why are you having such a good time? And the question is framed around this idea, this spiritual practice of fasting. Now fasting, if you, if you don't know, fasting is just the idea of, of, of actually abstaining from food in order to greater pursue the Lord. And so the time that you would spend preparing and cooking and eating and cleaning up, whatever you would devote that time to food that day, you, you give that up and you devote that time to the Lord. That was the practice of it. And originally sort of was birthed as an idea to, to increase self-control, uh, to deepen your reliance on God, to, to remove distractions between you and him. It can be done to seek his wisdom on a decision. It can be done as an act of worship. It can be done just as a sheer goal of just increasing your connection to the Lord. 
But it's done best willingly, it's done best voluntarily, and it's done best according to Jesus in Matthew 6, it's done best in secret. Now, the entirety of Judaism and the religious structure had become what I would call uber-religious, uber-religious by the time Jesus' day arrived. And so, for instance, if you read in the Old Testament and you go through the first five books, there are over 300 commands in the original Mosaic Law. That's a lot. 300 commands to know, 300 commands to obey, 300 commands to follow. And I think we'd all agree that's enough, but apparently it wasn't. Because by the time time Jesus came on the scene, uh, the Israelites and their scribes and Pharisees and leaders had added an additional 700 regulations, rules, and commands. I mean, think of that, 700 more. And among these, if you're going to have over 1,000 commands, of course, among these, there were going to be rules about fasting. And so by the time Jesus arrived, the Pharisees were teaching people that you should fast twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday you should fast. And so when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler in the book of Matthew, and he says, I fast twice a week, this is what he's talking about. And so what happens is instead of this being a free act of devotion, this became a systemic act of obligation and comparison. It was done so that you could be seen as holy. And the value in it became that others would know that you're fasting. So this is why Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they've had the reward. Jesus is like, I I see through it, guys. The whole reason you're doing this is so that everybody else knows you're fasting. If that's what your goal is, then that's all you're going to get out of it. So let's, let's break this down in a more general scope, right? Fasting is first mentioned in Exodus 34 when Moses does it. And then, so it's this, this, it's this act of abstaining to get closer to God, and then religion gets involved. And it's altered dramatically, right? Where voluntary became mandated, and private became public, and a pursuit of God became a pursuit of a self-image that you're displaying to others, and spirit-driven became calendar-driven, and worship became obligatory, And what ended up being missed in all of it was God, the very one it was supposed to be about. Jesus continues in Matthew 6, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The point, Jesus says, is to connect with the Father. He doesn't want to get rid of the practice. He just wants it done right. He wants to bring a pursuit of God back into it. And this is the playbook of religion, by the way, where religion takes something that is designed to increase our devotion to God and smothers it in rules and obligations. I had a guy at my previous church who, on multiple occasions, literally cornered me in the back of the sanctuary and wanted me to state as a fact whether a tithe is 10% of your gross pay or your net pay. He He had to know. And finally, I had to tell him, like, if, if your giving to the Lord is based off meeting the bare minimum of what you see as a burden, burdensome legal requirement, you've missed the boat entirely. You have no idea what giving's about. Because 2 Corinthians 9 says that God loves a cheerful giver, not one with reluctancy or who gives under compulsion, but who recognizes just how good the Lord has been to them and then gives back freely. 
So whether it's fasting, or whether it's tithing, or whether it's purity, or devotion, or prayer, or reading the Bible, on and on and on and on, religion takes these things designed to increase our joy in God and chokes them out in definitions and regulations and burdens. And instead of being a genuine pursuit of God, it always ends up becoming a practice of comparison. Where you weigh your worthiness based on how you compare to others. So if you tithe, or you fast, or you observe this law, or you know Greek and Hebrew, or you wear a suit and tie, or you parent a certain way, or you have a theological conviction, and they don't, well, look at you. Pretty great. Everybody else should be more like you. And instead of rejoicing that I've been freed from the penalty of Christ, of, of sin by Christ, instead of marveling that I've been given the wondrous gift of the righteousness of Jesus, instead of reveling in the fact that God loves me tremendously, I'm left trying to keep up with all the rules and check off all the boxes and keep up with the Joneses so I can somehow feel worthy. And it puts people under burden after burden after burden after burden. And then worst of all, it does absolutely nothing to change a human heart. Paul mentions this in Colossians chapter 2 because the religious folk had wormed their way into that church and started adding religion back into faith in Jesus. And he addresses the false teaching by saying, although these false teachings, they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting all this self-made religion and false humility and a severe treatment of the body, they look pious, right? Here's the result. They're not of, in, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They don't change your desires. They don't change your heart. The value of religion is non-existent. It is a burdensome deception that tricks people into thinking that they're getting closer to God when the fruit of it is always that it's leading them further and further from the heart of the Father. Which is what makes the contrast even more powerful. That Jesus is really good news that's worth celebrating. I mean, we just stop this morning and just think for a second about the state of humanity. That every single one of us have this incredible gift of life that we didn't choose. Not one of you chose to exist. It was given to you. It's a gift. And yet hanging over that gift every second is this undeniable truth that we're all going to die. That that gift will run out. We all know something's wrong. Right? That's why there's sickness and, and war and disaster and tragedy all you, and division. Just look at the world. You can see there's all kinds of things wrong. And we all know if we're honest that there's something wrong with us. Which is why in that environment, human beings have throughout history always turned to religion because we're looking for an answer. And in the loosest terms, right, we've turned to a system of religion where we are the answer, where we follow a system of rules, or we go through uh, rituals, or we observe different things, or observe these ceremonies, and then we'll, we'll, by the skin of our teeth and our good works, we'll get to God and we'll get to heaven because we want to think that we're the solution and not the problem. The problem with this approach is multi-layered. First, we are indeed the problem. And so we can't be the solution. You don't get a mud stain out of a shirt by wiping more mud onto it. Secondly, all of our efforts to remedy the problem actually make the problem worse. Surely you've noticed, right, that every religion always produces extremists? Everyone. People have confused what Jesus offers with religion, and so there have been Christian extremists as well, because extremists are what? They are the people who carry out these things, these religious ideas, to the furthest logical conclusion. 
It's up to me to do something drastic to fix the problem. And so they do. Religion never solves the problem. It always adds more. It's standing in contrast to this is Jesus. Consider this first, 2 Corinthians 5. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why? Here's why. Because he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the greatest problem facing humanity isn't death, it's our sin. Sin is when we don't obey. Sin is when we don't adhere to God's design for living. We are all sinners. Every single one of us has a sinful nature, which means we don't have to work at sin. We can just do it effortlessly. Sin is the reason that we die, because sin kills. And worse than that, sin is, the, is, is what separates us from a holy God who made us. And that separation will send us to hell forever. Romans 6 says that the wages, the cost, the penalty of sin is death. But thank God the verse doesn't end there. The gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you notice the language in both 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 6, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. He had Jesus go to the cross to become our sin and therefore pay the price for our sin so that we could make this exchange that we become the righteousness of God when we believe in him. Which simply means that that Jesus paid the cost and penalty for our sin so that in God's eyes, we could be sinless in Jesus Christ. And sinless means forgiven and perfect in God's eyes, which means there is no separation between us and the Lord anymore, which means we have eternal life in heaven with him. Now, you need to understand that nowhere, absolutely nowhere in God's plan do you earn this. It's why the gospel is good news. It's why the book of Mark began the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, because the news of Jesus really is the greatest news ever, that those who believe in him can laugh even in the face of death. And so in that context, when these guys show up and ask Jesus, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like all the other disciples are fasting? You know what they're asking, right? Why aren't your guys more sad and more serious and more devout, you know, like all the other religious folk? And his answer is this. Does anybody fast at a wedding feast? Of course not. It's a joyous occasion. It's a party. The kingdom of God has arrived, fellas. God has come to his people. The Messiah has arrived. The Son of Man is here and in your midst. And he's come to seek and save sinners. And eternal life and grace and freedom and salvation have come with him. This is not a time for sadness or mourning. It's a time for rejoicing. Now what he's not saying is that life forever from that point on is going to be free of trouble. At least not on this earth. In fact, look what he says in verse 20. He says, the time will come when the groom, that's him, will be taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. That phrase taken away in Greek means to be violently removed. Jesus is saying there's a day coming when I'm going to be violently removed from these guys. He's talking about the cross and how he's going to suffer and die, and they're going to have a season of mourning, and they're going to have a season of fasting then. But the joy that Jesus will bring through his sacrifice will outlast all suffering. Because what Jesus opened up for us on the cross is tremendous. Eternal life in heaven, in perfection, which means there's nothing, and I want you to hear that word, nothing that this life and nothing this world can throw at you that will trump what Jesus has already given you. 
There is no suffering. There is no illness. There is no separation. There is no death, no matter how terrible or tragic or awful. And they are all those things. All of those things are temporary, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're told about it in Revelation 21. This is what it's going to be like. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, that will be your reality forever. It's yours. Which means simply that in Jesus, you have a joy that persists. You have a joy that overcomes. You have a joy that is inconquerable. The gospel of Jesus is the greatest news ever. And that is in part because of how exclusive and set apart it is. Because Jesus' gospel and religion are absolutely incompatible. Now, I want you to think the scene that's happening here in Mark 2. Everybody, whether they, they admitted it or not, everybody was impressed with Jesus' teaching. Everybody was impressed with his power and the miracles he was doing. In fact, we have in John 3 a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he admits to him, we know you're from God. All of us do. Because there is no other explanation as to what, how you're doing these things. And so there's no doubt in my mind that best case scenario for these religious folk, these, these religious leaders, is some kind of merging, right? How can we take Jesus' teachings? How can we take his popularity? How can we take his power and mold it into our religious system that we like and are comfortable with? And this is what Jesus had to say about that in verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made and no one puts new wine into the old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. He gives two images, tells two parables, right, that expose the folly of this kind of thinking. And the first is, he says, nobody takes a, a patch of a brand new garment and sews it onto an old garment, right? Because what would happen? When the new patch will become wet, when it's washed, it will actually shrink and then it will tear away from the old garment and will create a bigger hole that existed in the first place. Second, nobody pours new wine in old wineskins because what happens is as the newer wine ages and ferments, as gases will be leafed, it will expand and it will end up bursting the skins and both the skins and the wine will be completely ruined and useless. Now you, have, you get the point, right? Both stories are the same point. The new is incompatible with the old and worse than that, any attempt to bind the newness of the gospel with the old system of religion would not only be futile but actually cause a bigger problem than exists in the first place. Because the free gift of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ is not to be mixed with religion. In Luke 22, he's establishing communion. He's, he's ordaining it, right? With his disciples on the, on the night before the cross and the Passover meal. And here's what he says. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He's saying, guys, tomorrow on the cross, I'm going to establish a brand new covenant between God and his people. The author of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 8, when he says, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. The question we should ask is why was a new covenant needed? 
Right? Didn't, didn't God provide the law in the first place? Well, the, since we're all sinners, right, nobody could live up to the law. No one could follow it and fulfill it perfectly. And so what the law did was two things that are important, but ultimately stop way short of what we need. The two things the law did was reveal our sin and reveal our guilt. Now, we need to know that. But there's no life in that. There's no hope in that. There's no salvation in that. And so we needed Jesus. Romans 8, for what the law could not do, which was save people, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did it. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering. The law could not save, it only condemns people. And so God sent Jesus to save us. Which means you cannot mix the law with Jesus. You cannot mix religion with the gospel. The reality is this. You cannot save yourself. You can't ever do it. And so your options are this. To trust in Jesus alone and trust in Jesus fully or don't bother at all. Any idea that you can believe in Jesus but you have to add in your own works or your own church attendance, your own baptism, your own stands, your own denomination, whatever. It's futile. It invalidates grace. It doesn't work. It's Jesus or nothing. And when you realize that there's nothing that you could ever do to save yourself, there's nothing you could have ever done to earn heaven or forgiveness, and you discover that Jesus can and will save you and forgive you if you only ask, well, then it's not hard to see why you should be celebrating and sharing. Which is why the weirdest thing about humanity is that we have this constant pull to religion. We're drawn to it, even after we've experienced something better. Which is why God included this passage in his word, why Jesus told these parables. It's why there's so many other passages warning us about this, remind us about this, drawing our attention that this is being active in us. And so as we consider how to respond, let's start here. I'd like for you this morning to just perform a religion inventory. I worked at a telecommunications company. My least favorite week of the year was inventory week. Because I have to go into the warehouses and offices and storerooms and just count for hours on end. What I was doing is taking inventory, make sure that what we had matched what our records were. And as little as I like that, I think there's value in taking inventory. I think a regular aspect of following Jesus should be us taking inventory. And here's what I mean by that. There's this prayer in Psalm 139 where David prays. He says, search me, God. Search me and know my heart. Right? Test me and, and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I just have a question for you this morning. Do you ever pray like that? You ever just invite the Lord's inspection? Search me, God. Look, look, look deep into my heart, look deep in my soul in places that I can't even see and point out to me ways that I'm living and have attitudes and have mindsets that, aren't, that don't line up with your word and are unpleasing to you. And you know why we should do this? Because things can sneak up on us. Things can sneak up on our sinful nature and our heart that's been deceived by sin without us even realizing it. And so there are a series of questions and I'm on this topic alone I want to ask you this morning. Questions that you can ask yourself and ask the Lord and to, to speak to you and reveal some things. Questions like, do I, do I actually believe that God owes me blessings because of what I do for him? Do I actually believe that I could put the Lord in my debt? Do I compare myself with others so I can feel better about myself and my standing with the Lord? 
Have I ever bought in the lie of seeing myself as the standard as to which others should strive to be? Do I feel more burdened than I feel joy? Am I marked more by skepticism and cynicism and bitterness than I am freedom and gentleness and happiness? Am I angry a whole lot more than I'm free? Do I feel superior to others? Do I add rules that are even beyond what God has revealed in his word? And maybe the biggest one of all, is my focus more on what I do or am I far more focused on what Jesus Christ has done for me? Ask yourself this question. See what the Lord may reveal. And in that process, please, stop heaping burdens on yourself and others. In Acts 15, there was a debate among early Christians where there's these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. Non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus for the first time. And, and, and there's a really cool detail that that's, can be missed in first read is that among the Christians in Jerusalem were former Pharisees. And I love the idea that after the resurrection, the gospel even got to the Pharisees. But when these Gentiles started believing, some of the Jewish Christians those who were actually former Pharisees, started demanding that these adult Gentiles be circumcised so they could be like the Jewish people. Because even post-conversion, Phariseeism and religion is really hard to shed. Legalism is hard to give up, guys. And so the church's leaders all got together and they discussed it. And there were some really wise things said on that day that are included for us in God's word. First is Acts 15 verse 10. Peter is speaking. He says, now then, why are you testing God? By putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. Nine verses later, James is speaking. He says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. You get what those guys are saying, right? Peter's saying, why in the world would we want to put the weight of the law on these Gentile believers? We couldn't live up to it. Our ancestors couldn't live up to it. It was a burden that we crumbled other. Why would we do that to somebody else? James piggybacks off him and says, so if these Gentiles want to turn to God, why would we ever add to what Jesus has done for them? Why wouldn't that be enough? Why heap burdens on top of it? And the reason this is so great is because it's the opposite of what Jesus said the religious leaders of his day did in Matthew 23 and that excoriating takedown of them. Where he says, do what they say, but don't do as they do. And here's why in verse 4, because they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. They add burden after burden after burden after burden. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Man, I, I hope you know this, but it needs to be repeated. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven in full. You're an adopted child of God. His Holy Spirit lives in you. Eternal life is yours and it begins now. And God does not begrudgingly love you. It, the, the Bible says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cost. And so Jesus openly claims you as his own. And the work that he began in you, we are promised in God's word in Philippians that he will see it through to completion. Don't ever run back to religion. Don't ever run back to legalism. Stop comparing yourself to others. True obedience and holy living and honoring and pleasing the Lord. These things don't ever come from adding burdens to your life. They are birthed from a genuine enjoyment of and a love for the Lord. And so this should be life-giving. This should be the best advice I can give you is enjoy the heck out of Jesus. Enjoy what he's done for you. 
And don't ruin the blessing by making it a burden for others. Fight the urge to compare your piety to others and then make a judgment call on their worthiness. Fight the urge to declare that what he's done in your life that's been meaningful to you has to be prescriptive for everybody else. There are people who connect with the Lord by, by getting like, literally into a prayer closet and praying for hours on end. There are people who connect with the Lord by having short prayers throughout, with him throughout their entire day. What's great is that both of them connect with the Lord. What would be awful is if either demanded the other adhere to their system. Just thank the Lord for how he's worked in your life. Thank the Lord for how he connects with you. Thank the Lord for what he's doing and let him work in the lives of others as he sees fit. You don't need to add burdens to what he's already done. And then join in the celebration. And there's a verse in 1 Thessalonians that's really quite extreme. Like if you actually think about it this morning, it's really extreme. It's, it's so rarely lived out. 1 Thessalonians 5 Here's the language. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you, by the way, you ever wonder what God's will for you is? Here it is. To rejoice all the time. To pray constantly. Always be in communication with him. To give thanks in everything that you experience. That alone should be enough, right? To know that that's what God wants for us to do. So let's ask the question, why would that be God's will for us? Why of all things is that what he wants his people to do and to be? Well, it's because he's made it entirely possible. I mean, I, if you have young kids, you'll, you'll recognize, you'll relate with this real easily. If you, if you don't or they're older now, you'll probably remember. As a parent of young kids, my least favorite thing in life is being woken up in the middle of the night. It's just, it's hard to feel anything but rage at that moment, right? And, and so it's just constantly, so, so once they're quiet, once they're in bed, you're like, anything that you can do to stay quiet. Like, that's, that's the number one goal. Well, this is a stupid example, but the night that the Cubs won the World Series back in 2016, the game ended at like 1.30 in the morning, just a ridiculous time. And I started yelling, and Corinne was like, be careful, you're going to wake the girls up. And I was like, let them wake up. I don't care, right? I'll go back, and I'll lay in the room for five hours, because life is good. I don't, like, whatever would annoy me the day before doesn't annoy me tonight. And I tell you that stupid point because this, this is what we should be like as Christians. The greatest thing in the world has happened to us. We are freed, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we've been saved and delivered. We have no fear of death, we have been spared of hell, we are his forever, and we did nothing to earn it. And he did all of that because he really does love us that much. Should that not change us? I mean, shouldn't that birth in us an unending joy? Shouldn't that result in a constant desire to communicate with him and a gratitude that never leaves us? You know what the church is called the bride of Christ in the scriptures? You know what that means? The wedding feast never ends. So imagine, I want you to imagine this morning, actually that being your reality. Imagine having a joy and gratitude that's untouchable no matter how tough the trial and suffering gets. Imagine, right? Imagine people experiencing you and actually being attracted to the God that you claim to serve and love and follow. Imagine just letting go of the shackles of comparison and guilt and shame and judgment and keeping score and just simply enjoying God and what he's done in your life. What would that do for you? 
What would that do for your life, for your outlook? What would that do for your relationships? What would that do for your impact for him? Would you not celebrate him so much more and share him so much more? And my prayer is this, that God will be raising up a church of people here at FPN that looks so much more like people celebrating at a wedding than people weighed down by religion. Let's pray. God, you have been so tremendously good to us. And oftentimes our response to that is so tremendously underwhelming. And Lord, it's not... I don't believe it's, it's a, the disharmony there is in a mental understanding. I don't believe the disharmony there is in a theological understanding. I think it goes deep into our heart where despite the grace been shown to us, we have this propensity to run back to religion. Despite knowing I could never save myself, I still want to earn my keep. Despite knowing there's nothing I could do to put you in my debt, I still think that somehow when I do something good, you owe me something. And when I do something bad, you're going to punish me even greater. Lord, all of this is antithetical to the gospel. All of this is the opposite of what Jesus proclaimed. And so would you raise up in us today a joy and a gratitude and a contentment that is found in what Jesus has done for us. And would that enjoyment of you, would that love for you spur us on to the holy living and the, and the, and the righteous response that we could easily make burdens if we viewed them as religious but instead just become the outflow of a heart that loves you. Father, if there's anybody in, within the sound of my voice this morning who has never, ever trusted in Jesus alone, not in the idea of Jesus plus their works, not in the idea that they could somehow earn their way to you, but just trusted in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection alone for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation in you, I pray that right now would be their moment of belief. Right now that they would lay down every ounce of earning, every ounce of striving and just say, I trust you, Lord, forgive me and save me. And we ask that you would do this for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Amen. Well, before we sing our closing, uh, some time to just have a moment of response between you and the Lord, a moment